Thanks for joining us for today's message. We are always so encouraged to hear how God is working through this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God has worked in your life, then let us know by sending us an email to mystory@timberlakechurch.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by giving online at timberlakechurch.com give. Enjoy the message. Well, hello and welcome to Timberlake. It's so good to see you. My name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome those of you at all of our campuses uh, in Redmond, in Issaquah, Duval, Woodenville, Bothell, Castle Rock, and online. Uh, wherever you're joining us at today, uh, we're glad that you're here. We're going to be continuing our series, Life Verse. And the big idea is this is that you could choose a verse or a few verses that could sort of serve as a guiding light for you, for, for your life or for the season of life that you found yourself in. And so the verse we're gonna be looking at today is found in Proverbs. It's a small verse, but it's got some pretty big implications. If you wanna pull the note sheet out of your program, follow along, here's what it says. It says, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The tongue, and, and not just our tongue, but our words, they have the power to, to create life or to create death. Circle those words, life and death. How many of you, uh, full participation, all of our campuses, how many of you can roll your tongue? Come on, be proud. There we go. Now, if you're this guy, you can probably roll your tongue a few times. He holds the world record for the longest tongue which is incredible. How many of you can, can like do that thing where you bunch your tongue up? A few, okay, a few of us. How many of you can lick your nose? Don't do it, just raise your hand. How, how many of you, you have an equally uh, useless hidden talent? Uh, how many of you are, are double jointed? How many of you hear voices in your head? <laughs> just checking, just checking. What we're going to be doing today is, is we're going to camp out in the book of James. And James has a lot to say about our words that we use. Here's what it says in James 3, starting in verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Or though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. James saying that when it comes to our words, not only are they powerful, but for a lot of us, we get it wrong a lot of the time. One thing that we all have in common is we all have those moments where just as the words are leaving our mouth, our brain catches up and we're like, oh no, what did I just say? How do I like grab those words and put them back? Why do we do this? Because words matter. Here's the reality, and this is the first fill-in in your note sheet. Life is controlled by words. Life is controlled by words. Now, some of you are, are here this weekend and you love to talk. Others of you are here and you love to love the people in your life that love to talk, right? Here, here's some stats for the you stat people in the room. 
If you're an average person, you'll have 30 conversations a day. Some of you are thinking, I hit average before lunch. You'll spend a fifth of your life talking. In one year, you'll speak enough words to fill 53 1,000-page books. The longest sermon ever preached was by Clinton Lacey, which was 48 hours and 18 minutes. I intend to break that record today. (laughs) Now, when it comes to our words, there are right words and there are wrong words. The right words uh, build faith and inspire action and restore relationships and, and build bridges and can make an incredible difference. The wrong words can, can destroy people. They can ruin opportunities. They can take years to discover from, to, to recover from. And, but, but here's the big problem. Often the wrong words seem like the right words in the moment, don't they? Most communication problems are not premeditated. The the wrong words, in the moment, they seemed like the right words. It seemed like the right thing to say. There have been several neurological studies done studying men and women's brains, and they've discovered that, that men are built differently. Men, we have this incredible ability to form words in our mouth and then to speak them without them ever having to pass through our brains. It's just, it's just incredible. It's incredible. Have you ever said something and then you immediately regretted what you just said? Sometimes it's what we say. Sometimes it's what we don't say. Have you ever frozen in the moment and like you miss an opportunity to say something and you know it's there and you just kind of panic and freeze and your mouth just stops working and then the moment just kind of lasts for a lifetime? I remember uh, two summers ago, I was at the pool with my then two-year-old son, Henley. And we were in the middle of the pool and we were swimming and having a great time. There wasn't very many people around. And right in front of us, there was this big lifeguard stand. And a new lifeguard came up, and and she was probably like an older teenage girl. And she climbs to the top of the stand. And she had short hair, like like my length of hair. Not my hairline, thank goodness, but my length of hair. And and my two-year-old son, Henley, is is looking up at her kind of confused. And he points at her. And he says in way too loud of a voice, he says, that a boy, daddy? That a boy? And I panicked. I don't know why I panicked, but I froze, and my heart starts beating, and I'm like, no, no, shh, shh, that's not, that's not boy. And, and, and he's like confused because I'm being weird and not answering his question, so he just gets louder. And he's, he's like, that a boy, daddy, that a boy. And so I like don't know what to do, and so I like push his head underwater, and, and I, I don't do that, but I, I grab him, and I'm like pulling him to the other side. I'm like, shh, stop talking, stop talking. And we get to the other side of the pool, and my wife is just sitting there looking at me. And she's like, what just happened? I'm like, I don't know. He was yelling at the girl and she was looking and it was embarrassing and I didn't know what to do. And she says, why didn't you just say, no, honey, that's a girl. She just has short hair. (laughs) I'm like, because that would have been the smart thing to say, but I panicked and I froze. Now, Now, we all have stories where we don't say something or we say something and in the moment it's horrible and embarrassing but then weeks or, or months later, we, we look back and, and we laugh at it, right? But then we all have those moments where we say something or, or something's been said to us, and it's weeks or months or even years later, and, and we're still not laughing. Hurtful words, accusatory words, judgmental words, harsh words, and, and, and they... they they stick with us, and, and we, we all experience this. You, right now, you can think of the moment and the time and the place and the person who spoke them. 
It was in junior high. It was in high school. It was at my first job. It was in my first relationship. It was, it was a teacher or a friend. And, and the words, they just, they just stuck. Maybe for you, your parents, they, they said something in anger or in frustration. And if they knew you still remembered it, they'd be embarrassed. In fact, they've probably forgotten that it even happened, but you haven't. And it's, it's stuck with you. Which is funny because most of the things that they've prayed and hoped that we would remember over the years, we've forgotten, right? But, but negative words, they have power. So do positive ones. So what do we do? I wrote down some common things that we all experience in your notes. And, and there's a, there's a checkbox next to each one. And maybe you just want to put a check next to the one or ones that you struggle with the most. And if you think, you know what, I don't struggle with any of these, just ask the person sitting next to you. They'll be able to quickly check off a few boxes for you. I asked my wife, I said, which one of these do you think I struggle with the most? She said, how many boxes am I allowed to check? I said, I think you just answered the question for me. So here we go. Where our words go wrong. When we wield them as weapons, when we speak in anger, when we raise our voice, when we yell, when we tell lies, when we judge someone else, and we do damage. Our words go wrong when we use them to control. It reminds me of uh, the college student who wrote home to her parents during her sophomore year in college. And she said this, she said, Dear mom and dad, I know this is really going to disappoint you, but I met a guy. He's 15 years older than I am. We just eloped. I'm two months pregnant and I'm dropping out of school. I will contact you at some point in the future. P.S. Just kidding, but I did flunk one class and I need 200 bucks. Please keep this in perspective. <laughs> Smart kid. Also a little manipulative, right? Some of you, uh, you know the right words to say in the right moment in the right way to get what you want. And you use your words to, to manipulate and to control. Our words also go wrong when we hold them hostage. For some of us, it's, it's more about silence and secrets. Are you easy to talk to about difficult things? Or do you immediately shut down or, or shut down the conversation or, or turn it back on the other person? Or maybe for you, your relationship, it's, it's, it's more of a transactional thing where I only give what I get and it's more of a quid pro quo thing. For some of us, we think great thoughts, but we just never say them to anybody. And you know what silence does? Silence creates suspicion, right? When we don't say things, it creates suspicion. And other people, they're going to fill in the blanks. And usually when we fill in the blanks, we don't do it in a healthy way, do we? Our words also go wrong when we don't follow through. Broken promises, commitments, where we say one thing and then we, and then we do something else. And then finally, our words go wrong when we're unclear, have you ever been misunderstood? Sometimes we're not trying to do damage, we're just not clear enough. We just say things in, in the wrong way or we don't give the full picture. Sometimes our words can, they just get lost in translation. I was reading this last week uh, in a, uh, a back issue of American Demographics magazine and uh, about some of the classic communication mistakes when, when American companies would, would try to translate something into Spanish and they would take one of their, their slogans and, and bring it directly over. A lot of you might know that when General Motors decided to name a car Nova, it didn't know that it means doesn't go in Spanish. <laughs> Did you know that in 1977, 
Braniff Airlines advertised the leather seats in their first class with the slogan, fly in leather. The problem is when they translated that straight over into Spanish, it meant fly naked, which attracted a whole different group of people. Probably made TSA's job a little easier though, right? Coors Brewing Company went with the slogan, turn it loose. Unfortunately, the phrase in Spanish meant suffer from diarrhea. And when Frank Perdue said, it takes a tough man to make a tender chicken, Spanish speakers heard, it takes a sexy man to make a chicken affectionate. (laughs) Now, does that make you feel a little better about your mistake? It makes me feel a little bit better. So what can we do? I want to spend the rest of our time today looking at what the book of James has to say about how we can do better with our words. James has some, some great thoughts on not just where we go wrong, but how we can get it right. And and I'm going to ask you to maybe write a name down next to each of these points of somebody that you can try this with this week. My hope is that at the end of the service that you would have four names with four challenges that you could try this week. The first one is this. Listen longer. Psychologist Carl Roger said this about understanding and listening. Nothing feels so good as being understood. That's so true, isn't it? Sometimes we feel like we have to have the the perfect words to share with somebody. Like if we have a friend and they're going through a difficult time and we're doing like peer-to-peer counseling and we feel like I just have to have the right words to say. And I just don't think that's true. I think that we just have to be really great at listening. If you're willing to listen deeply, you can make a huge difference. You see, we're talking about doing better with our words, but really it starts with listening. The problem is most of us are not naturally good listeners. I can't tell you how many times one of my kids will say, dad, 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 dad. And then finally my wife's like, babe, answer your son. And then I'll snap back into the moment and I'll feel like a horrible dad and I'll put down whatever I was doing and and I'll lock in. James 1.19 says it like this. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. This is where most of us uh, suffer from spiritual dyslexia. We're slow to listen and quick to speak. But how do we change that? Let me give you a couple practical thoughts, but a question first. What would it do to your relationships if you became better at listening? Would our marriages be a little bit better if we listened a little bit more? Would our children be a little bit more communicative if we decided instead of talking to them, we're just going to create some space and opportunities to listen to them a little bit more? I read a study this last week that said 50% of wives say, my husband doesn't talk to me like I'd like him to. 86% of the divorces, one of the major reasons stated is that we just couldn't communicate. One in four kids say, I've never had a significant conversation with my dad. That's tough. Communication is difficult, but it's doable. And I think that it starts by becoming a great listener. You know what listening does? Listening creates trust in a relationship. We can't have great communication without great trust. And it starts by listening. You know what I've discovered about people who are great listeners, and and you probably have too? Great listeners are great at asking questions, aren't they? You know a great test between a good listener and a bad listener? 
A bad listener will listen to what you have to say, and then when you get to the end of your story, they tell a story to top your story, right? Have you ever experienced that? That's a bad listener. A great listener will get to the end of what you have to say, and then they'll ask a question to draw out more of your story. That's the difference. Where, where I listen, not just to respond, but where, where you feel like I acknowledge that, that you're speaking, that I'm hearing, that I'm understanding what you're saying. Often when, when, when I know that you hear me and understand me and empathize with me, when my feelings are validated, then we can move forward. When I know, and, and maybe my feelings are wrong, but once I know that you understand them, then we can move forward. Sometimes we, we get in this place with relationships where we feel like we're hitting a wall, and it's simply because we've moved too far ahead too fast. And if we'll just, if we'll just take a step back and just say, you know what, I acknowledge that you're feeling this way. Then, then once I know you, I can feel this way, now I have permission to move forward. Who do you need to listen longer with this week? Maybe you need to schedule it. Maybe you need to, to take some time to make some space, set a reminder, set down your phone, put distractions aside, look them in the eye, ask questions, think about what they're saying, and just listen a little bit longer. Number two, brag differently. You see, I think another way for us to do better with our words is to brag differently. James continues to talk about our words, and, and this is what he says in chapter three. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue makes great boasts, but notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say who those boasts have to be about. Have you ever overheard someone uh, talking about you? Have you ever heard someone and, and they're saying something uh, mean or hurtful and they don't realize that, that you're there? And, and what do you do? You feel about this small, don't you? And you either want to run away and hide or throat punch them, right? One of the two. I remember I was, uh, I was a kid. I was probably a freshman in high school. And I was on the soccer team, and we were driving back from a soccer game. And two of my friends, they were sitting behind me, and they were talking about me, but they didn't realize that I could hear. And one of them said something uh, hurtful about me, and the other one defended me. I'm like, well, at least I'm 50-50 with my friends, right? And in, in that moment, I just remember feeling sick, and small. And, and, and some of you know what I'm talking about. But then some of us, we've experienced the opposite where, where you hear someone talking about you and they say something nice, right? Like they're complimenting you behind your back. How does that make you feel? You kind of puff up, don't you? It feels good. You like them more and you like yourself more in that moment. And you know what? It makes you want to do better, doesn't it? Here's the interesting thing. It actually makes us want to be better. It makes you want to be more of what the person said that you are. One of my goals as a parent is for my kids to overhear me talking well about them. Sometimes Haley and I will be having a conversation and uh, we'll mention one of our kids and, and they'll be doing something else, but they'll hear their name and so they'll kind of perk up. They'll keep doing what they're doing, but they'll like secretly listen in. And, and I'll just keep talking about them. And I'll just start bragging about them and, and something they've done or, or something that, that I've seen. And, and what does it do? It just makes them feel good about themselves. And it makes them want to be more of whatever I'm talking about them about. Proverbs 27, 1 and 2 says this. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what the day may bring. Let someone else praise you, not your own mouth, an outsider and not your own lips. 
We have all have those friends who, they talk a little bit too much about themselves, right? And it's like kind of endearing, but kind of annoying at the same time, you know? What would happen if, if instead of bragging about yourself, you were the other person in this verse, where you were the someone else, and you begin to talk about other people? When's the last time that you gave someone else the credit for the project, the win? When's the last time you, you, you talked well about someone else to someone else? If you don't have a person or, or a few people that this last week you talked up to someone else about, maybe this would be a good challenge for you. And, and it's not about waiting until you see someone walking by and then talking really loudly about them. That'll get a little awkward. It's simply about seeing things in others, calling them out, talking well about people to other people, and, and most of the time they'll never overhear it. Maybe they will. But what will it do? It'll be a benefit to those that hear it, and it'll be a benefit to you. Because there's just something contagious about talking well about people. Brag differently. And then there's number three. Criticize wisely. When we were kids, uh, we were always told, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? We were taught to, to speak kindly with our words, to, to encourage people. And most of us, as we grew up, we were never taught how to give feedback or criticism in a healthy way. And we had to just kind of figure it out on our own through trial and error and for, for some of us through a lot of collateral damage along the way. In the book Radical Candor, Kim Scott talks about how to care personally and challenge directly at the same time. I think this is a great picture of what criticize wisely looks like. She talks about four different quadrants. Ruinous empathy, radical candor, manipulative insincerity, and obnoxious aggression. She talks about how that the most common quadrant that we find ourselves in is, is ruinous empathy. And she says in the workplace, about 85% of mistakes happen in this quadrant. It's where we're just trying to be nice and kind, and so we really don't offer any helpful feedback or say hard things that are true because we don't want to offend anybody. Now, obnoxious aggression happens when, when you challenge someone, but you don't care for them. Brutal honesty without love or care is obnoxious aggression. Makes for great reality television, doesn't it? Manipulative insincerity is, is when you fail to both, both care or challenge, and you get to this place where sometimes we're just too tired to try, and so we say what we think the other person wants to hear. And then she talks about radical candor, when you learn to challenge with love and care. This is where we talk about hard things in a life-giving way. This is where I care enough about the other person to say something, but I don't destroy them or wound them in the process. James 3.9 says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in his likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Sometimes there can just be a harshness to our words where, where we just do damage. Criticize wisely. It's often in the, the two extremes where problems arise. Either we don't say anything or we say too much. And finding that middle ground is where healthy relationships and healthy communications begin. Isaiah 42.3, there's an interesting uh, passage. It's in the Old Testament, and it's in the middle of this prophecy speaking about Jesus and, and who he will be and what he will accomplish and, and what he will be like. And it says this, 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. A bruised reed he will not break. There's this this gentleness and care depicted here, where there's enough pressure, but there's not too much pressure. And I just think this is a great picture of what healthy, helpful criticism looks like, where there's just the right amount of pressure. Now, Jesus did this. I always try to ask myself, is what I'm saying helpful? It may be true, but is it helpful? Some people, they, they speak truth, but they do a lot of harm in the process. There's some people who, they use truth like a missile, right? They don't say it to you, they aim it at you. It causes a lot of problems. Are your words that you're using producing the results that you're wanting? If not, it may be the other person or it may be your approach. And then finally, number four, how we can do better with our words. Encourage more. Listen longer, brag differently, criticize wisely, and encourage more. I don't think there's anyone that couldn't use a little bit more encouragement, right? Like no one says, you know what? My encouragement bucket is always full and it never leaks. Like just stop saying nice things about me because it's just, it's just too much, okay? No, none of us are like, we could all use a little bit more encouragement. Here's how James says that the way we should speak could be described as. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What a great picture of what encouragement could look like. Who do you need to encourage more this week? It's interesting that in the passage we read earlier in James, he talks about taming the tongue in terms of how we tame wild animals. Uh, a few months ago, my family and I were on a cruise, and uh, at one of, the, one of the stops was in Cozumel, and we were trying to decide what we were going to do, and so we were looking through the list of excursions, and, and one of them was swimming with the dolphins. And so we thought that looked like a ton of fun. I've always wanted to do that. I had never done it before. I thought the kids would get a huge kick out of it. And so we're like, let's do it. And so we get to this like lagoon and we get in the water and there's uh, trainers and there's dolphins and they're swimming around and it's this this beautiful place and the dolphins are doing all these tricks, right? So they're jumping and they're swimming and they're doing flips and they're coming up and giving us high fives and kisses and all this stuff. And it was just, it was just incredible, and I was, I was looking up how they train dolphins. And, and it's interesting. It's interesting how trainers train animals. You know how they don't do it? They don't do it by a lot of don't do that's and don't do this's or by punishing bad behavior. It's called approximation. What they do is they positively reinforce a tiny little improvement in behavior as they begin to approximate the ultimate behavior that they want to see displayed. So they talk about if you want to see, if you want a monkey to do a backflip, they're not just going to do a backflip. They're going to do a little jump, and you're going to reward them, and then they're going to do a bigger jump, and then you're going to reward them. And through the process, eventually, they'll be able to do it. Now, a woman named Amy Sutherland took those principles and applied them to her marriage. There's an idea. I love the title of this book, What Shamu Taught Me About a Happy Marriage. (laughs) It's all about, no joke, it's all about how she trained her husband using approximations and other animal training tricks. Now, I don't know if it was more difficult than training a monkey, but probably pretty close. Here's the idea. The idea is to praise every step in the right direction. 
Instead of, instead of in continually calling out the negative, you just notice people doing things right and then say something about it. My wife, uh, a while back, she brought home a jar and a bag of cotton balls. And she told my, my three-year-old son, Henley, she said, every time you do something nice or kind or helpful, or there's a few other behaviors that we're trying to reinforce, every time you do one of those, you get to put a cotton ball in the jar. And when the jar is full of cotton bars, balls, now you get, a, you get a prize. And for him, it's we get to go to Molly Moons. And he's stoked about that. And it's been incredible to see the difference that it's made in him. Mark Twain said, I can live two months on one compliment. Why can't we be that one compliment? Ephesians 4.29 says this, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. It's convicting for me to each day look back and think how many unhelpful things came out of my own mouth. This past week, I was picking up uh, downstairs, and I came across a photo book that my wife had made, and I was looking through it, and I was looking at some of the family pictures, and I was laughing, remembering the, the context and what was going on in the moment surrounding the picture. Pictures are interesting, aren't they? Because they just show a moment. They don't tell a story, right? You don't know the context. You just get to see the snapshot of the moment, and you don't know what was going on in the background or the craziness around it. You just see it. Now, a few years ago, and some of you may remember this, uh, Kodak Camera had a series of commercials in which they would advertise the ability to capture memories in something they called the Kodak Moment. Do you remember this? They'd show a picture of a family gathered around a lot of food, and they'd be, they'd be like at a picnic table down by the beach, and, and, and there'd be sand, and there'd be beautiful water, and the sun would be setting, and just right as the sun would, would hit the water, they would snap this picture, and it'd be a parent and a couple kids, and then, then this, this thing would come on the screen, and it would say, Kodak moment. And the idea was to take moments in our lives and freeze them so that we can carry them with us through eternity. Now, the whole idea is, is deceptive, right? You can't freeze time. And if any of you have ever been with your family down at the beach when the sun set, you know what happens, right? The sun goes down, the mosquitoes and the bugs come out, dad starts drinking a little too much, brothers and sisters start fighting, little junior loads up his diaper, sand gets in the chips. It's, it's a disaster, right? When you see a picture, you just, you just see the picture. You don't see the context. You don't know what else is going on. Sometimes when we have a negative interaction with someone else, and it happens all the time, right? It happens with people we know. It happens with people we don't know. There's just a negative interaction. And in, in those moments, we don't know the context. We just get to see the person in a snapshot, in a moment. It's like a picture. We don't know what was happening before. We don't know the context. We don't know the full story. We just see them in the moment. And we may be seeing them at their very worst. But I, I wonder sometimes, I wonder if, what if the reason that I'm having this negative interaction with them is that God would be wanting me to extend some grace to them? What if in the moment, in, in, and I'm having a negative interaction with somebody, and, and what if instead of thinking, you know what, this is a mistake, this should not be happening right now, what if instead I thought that maybe God would be trusting me with a moment with someone else? Where when they're being angry or, or rude or negative or, or, or condescending, that, that instead of 
escalating or, or, or walking away, that I would just extend some grace to them and encourage them? What if I could bring what Jesus has done in my life and I could take some of that grace that he's extended to me and I could extend it to them? Because when I'm at my very worst, God's at his very best. And if God can give me grace, then maybe I could give it to someone else. What if our life goal was this, to leave people better than we found them? That's what Jesus does with us, doesn't he? God sent Jesus, his son, into the world, not on a seek and destroy mission, but on a seek and save mission so that we could be in relationship with him. He sees the worst in us, but he calls out the best. And he does something in our hearts and in our lives that's transformational. And, and when we choose to do better with our words, and, and really it's not even about our words, is it? It's about doing better with people. When we do better with people, when I try my best and invite Jesus into the middle of it, I can leave people better than I found them. I was reading yesterday about what Jesus did when he spoke with people. And I read uh, a passage that Jesus did something interesting with a guy named Simon. Now, Simon was one of Jesus' disciples, and Simon was, was kind of a, a knucklehead. He was a little bit of a big mouth, clumsy fisherman. He made some mistakes, had a bit of a temper, a little bit abrasive. And when Jesus met him, Jesus said, I'm not going to call you Simon. I'm going to change your name to Peter, Petros. It means the rock. I'm going to call you the rock. Now, I was imagining what Peter's friends must have been thinking in that moment. Like, Jesus, you, you, you don't really know this guy. Like, The Rock, maybe Sandy. Let's call him Sandy. How about Pebbles? Let's call him Pebbles. The Rock, no way. But Jesus, he saw something different in Peter. He didn't see him where he was. He, he looked past his sin. He looked past his inadequacies. And he saw who Peter could be. And in that moment, not only did Jesus change his name, but I believe that he changed his life. If you read ahead a few books into the, the book of Acts, and, and in Acts chapter 2, uh, after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and he ascended, it says that the early church was getting started and 3,000 people became believers in one day. And if you read about how did 3,000 people become believers in one day, it happened after a sermon. And if you read about who spoke that sermon, it was the clumsy fisherman, Peter. Peter was instrumental in starting the early church. And it all happened because Jesus saw him not for where he was, but for where he could be, and he called something out of him. That's what Jesus does, and that's what Jesus helps us to do. I can do better with my words when Jesus is at the center of my life. Some of you, you're here this weekend, and you've been on the receiving end of some hurtful words, and they've stuck with you, and you've carried them with you even to this day. And perhaps you're here this weekend so that God could say to you, maybe it's time to let them go. And it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be hard. But, but maybe you would choose to, to drop them, to move forward, and to let Jesus help you with that. Thank you for listening to the Timberlake Church Podcast. Stay connected with us by visiting TimberlakeChurch.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. 